0: Let's take our Bibles and open them to Galatians chapter 6, Galatians chapter 6, and the wonderful description of Christian living at its best, Christian living at its best. Let's pray as we begin, Lord, as we come to our time of study of your word, Lord, I pray that it would have its impact, that it would go forth just as you have designed it to go forth, impacting the lives of both believer and unbeliever alike. Lord, that it would show forth itself in us through the Spirit and be a part of our life as we live with one another and as the world around us sees us, may they see Jesus Christ in us. Use it upon us tonight, impact our lives as we obey you in Christ's name. Amen. Galatians chapter 6, follow along as I read for us, beginning in verse 1. Apostle Paul writes, Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have a reason for boasting in regard to himself alone, and not in regard to another. For each one shall bear his own load. And let the one who is taught the word share all good things with him who teaches, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption. But The one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. And Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. So then, While we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. You can stop there. You remember what the Apostle Paul said back in verse 25 of chapter 5. He said these profound words, If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit we've been talking about that in our time in our morning service, and we were discussing that just a little bit ago, even here tonight. The Apostle Paul is simply saying, even in that verse, what we have all been talking about, that true spirituality is to be defined by who we are connected to and how that relationship is reflected in our lives. True spirituality is defined by who it is we are connected to and then, therefore, how that relationship is reflected in our lives. If we live by the Spirit, that's our connection, let us also walk by the Spirit. So as Christians, we are made alive by the Spirit. We are made righteous by Christ Christ dies for us, and we are made alive in Christ, as Ephesians 2 tells us. And of course, that describes in a nutshell what took place in the annals of God's mercy and grace to save us in His Son. He made us alive in Christ. And at that point, we were sealed, it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, We were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise so that now in our life today, we can be imitators of God as beloved children of God. That's what it says in Ephesians 5 verse 1. We are to be imitators of God. We can do that because we are alive by the Spirit. We live by the Spirit. We were sealed by the Spirit. We are made alive in Christ, and therefore we live by the Spirit. You can talk to a whole lot of people today in our world and in evangelicalism about what it means to be spiritual. And there's a great deal of confusion about spirituality that is in their minds in the Christian realm, the whole idea of spirituality seemingly sells a lot of books and it sells a lot of programs about what spirituality is. You go into any Christian bookstore, if there are any even brick-and-mortar Christian bookstores left these days, you can go into them and the shelves are full of books that are self-help books about how to become spiritual in some kind of way. Many of them, if not most of them, have some kind of road map, whatever they call it, to spirituality that really has nothing to do with God. And if it has to do with God at all, it is a self-absorbed track towards God, whereby the person becomes spiritual by having some kind of self-imposed quiet time or some kind of going through a, some kind of religious ritual that they can carry out, attending some kind of conference that is the most popular conferences out there, so that they can come away with some kind of mountaintop experience and then say to themselves, hey, look how spiritual I am. But that is not what we find here in this letter to the Galatian believers. Christian spirituality is rooted in a relationship with God who has spoken to us through his word. And that's the only place you will find true spirituality. True spirituality, and by that I mean spiritual living, is not defined by myself. It is not defined by me. It is not defined by something that I feel about something. But rather, it is a life that is defined and directed by the existence and character of of the one and only true God. True spirituality is defined only by God. It is defined as we look at God because He is the true spiritual One. It is not defined by how I feel. And the spiritual life then flows to us from the Godhead by means of God, the Spirit. We live by the Spirit Let us also then walk by the Spirit. So Christian living is at its best is Christian living that follows the Holy Spirit. You want to have Christian living at its best, then it's Christian living that obeys the Word of God. Why? Because the Holy Spirit does not produce his fruit. We looked at that last time we were here, the fruit of the Spirit, verses twenty-two and twenty-three of chapter 5, the Holy Spirit does not produce His fruit for our private enjoyment. Let me say that again. The fruit of the Spirit is not for our private enjoyment. Following the Holy Spirit is not an exercise for self-fulfillment exclusively. I say it that way because I don't want us to be to think that the fruit of the Spirit isn't for us at all, that we, there's no derived benefit by following the Spirit and then this fruit being a, a reflection of our lives. Certainly there is a derived benefit for us by way of our own Christian maturity, but it is not for us exclusively in that way. The Spirit produces fruit in us through us as we follow Him for the benefit of others. For the benefit of others. That simply tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is not a privately exercised and experienced reality. It is to be exercised and experienced by means of and in the presence of relationship or in the public, we could say. It's to be experienced and exercised in public. So we have to understand something. We have to realize that following the Spirit and bearing the fruit of the Spirit, as we are called to do, cannot be done in isolation. We kind of touched on this a little bit bit this morning as we were talking about Jesus Christ laying out the reality of what a kingdom citizen is. In other words, we cannot, it cannot be lived in isolation. We cannot love and bear the fruit of love without interacting with others. This is what I mean. It's relational. The joy of the Spirit is born in relationship. When the Spirit produces joy because we're following the Spirit, there's a joy in us and there's a joy in others who follow that reality. It is because of relationship. The peace and the patience of the Spirit is a result of interaction with others as we follow the Spirit. I cannot exercise kindness. I cannot exercise goodness, right? Jesus said, love your enemies be good to them or do good to them. I cannot exercise goodness or faithfulness or even gentleness. I cannot even exercise self-control, as it says here in Ephesians 5, outside of personal relationship. Therefore, spiritual life is meant to be shared. And here, in Galatians 6, Paul is showing us how to be spiritual in the lives of one another. Right? So he says, and we'll look at these over the next several weeks, he says, those who are following the Spirit, right? That's what we just came off of, 5.22 and 23. Those who are following the Spirit seek to restore others. Chapter 6, verse 1. They, see, they are their brother's keepers. Chapter 6, verse 2, bear one of those burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. They consider others more highly than themselves. Chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, for if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. And they give to others. Chapter 6, verse 6, let the one who is taught the word share in all good things as he teaches. So I want to hone in on these these realities here of walking by the spirit, right? The first of those is this seek to restore others who are in sin. Now for your own note taking, you need to realize, and you probably already have, we're not going to get past this one. Okay. We're just not going to get past this one. It's just too important for us because this is the crux of the issue. When we are interacting with each other, we seek to restore others who are in sin. Notice, that Paul is talking to the Christian, he says, "Brethren, right?" He he, all the way back in the in the early chapters of this of this book, he's wondering, chapter one, verse six. I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting him who called you. He's wondering, are, are, "Do you even know Christ?" I mean, you're talking about d- abandoning Christ in the sense because you think that justification is by means of you plus Jesus. So he's wondering about that, and by the time you get to chapter six, he's he's doing like Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. I want you who hear me to, to hear this. I want those of you who are really paying attention. I want you Christian to listen up. So he says, Brethren, brethren, he isn't saying that all people can do this. That's not the point. He's just saying this is the Christian. You who are the Christian. You who are spiritual. You who are genuinely saved. So who he's talking to. So brethren is, is identifying the mature in Christ. The ones who are spiritual in Christ. This is the true Christian. I think this is important for us to have in our minds as we begin this because far too often, especially when it comes to dealing with sin issues among us, right, we would rather just not. We would rather just not. Why? Because we'd rather just stay away. We'd rather just stay out of the mess. Right? This is why so often when sin issues come up, it sadly in some churches, sin just gets brushed under the rug, and pretty soon you've got a big pile of these sins laying around that everybody keeps tripping over, and nothing has been dealt with because we just don't want to get involved. We just want to stay away. We want to stay in isolation. We don't want to get involved. But that's not love, right? That's what we talked about earlier today. That is just not love. And the fruit of the Spirit is love. So if we're not willing to get involved, then we're really not following the Spirit. This is important. right? We're not talking about some sentimental kind of love. We, we touched on that already. We are talking about a conscious choice to seek the best for somebody else. A conscious choice to seek the best for one another. And so Paul says, when you are following the Spirit... The fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of love is evident in your life. And one of those ways that it's evident, notice, is that if a person is caught in any trespass. right? I don't know what some of your texts say. Mine says if any man is caught in a trespass. The word there is anthropos in the original language. It doesn't mean the gender of men, like if a man is caught in a trespass. It means a person. He's talking about humanity, somebody in general. If if you see someone caught in a trespass, another believer, remember he's talking to believers. Any person, that's what anthropos means here. And then he says, in any trespass. Any trespass, the word in the original language is tini, t-i-n-i, it's a Just an adjective that means anyone or any kind, any kind. And so here it's you see someone, anyone, even if anyone is caught in any trespass. So Paul's talking to us who are part of the church of God. He's talking to the brethren because we have been made alive by the spirit, right? Right. If we live by the Spirit, we are alive, we are in the Spirit, the Spirit is in us, and therefore we are to confront and deal with sin. We can't just ignore it. What kind of sin are we to deal with? He says, any kind. Any kind. It doesn't matter. So anytime a Christian is caught in a sin, we are to deal with it. You say, well, what does it mean to be caught the idea is behind it is the idea of being trapped right that's that's the idea i think it's a good word although i don't think it gives full nuance to it if we think think of it as a race think of it as you're on a road race you're running down the track you're leading the race and the guy behind you overtakes you from behind that's the idea it is that sin has overtaken this person it has Captured them. They've run, they're running, and it has captured them. That's the idea here. They are overtaken by sin. They are trapped by it. It's winning over them. What kind of sin? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. It can be any sin. Anything. It can be a small sin, it can be a grievous sin. It doesn't really matter. Any sin. Not qualified here by Paul, other than making it a grand level of just saying sin. Any sin. And notice, those who are spiritual are to restore the sinning brother. They're to restore the sinning person. The sister or brother, they come alongside. So that means, at least first of all, that isolation cannot be something. Isolation is not an option. We cannot say, well, I can't go to them. It's not an option. If we know of it, and we do nothing, then we are not following the Spirit. We're not loving them. We're leaving them in this caught place. We're leaving them in a sin. And if we are not loving them, then, as I said, we're not following the Spirit. We are not obeying the Word of God. And if we are not following the Spirit, what's that mean by implication? then we are following the flesh. Remember, there's no middle ground. You're either following spirit or you're following the flesh. If you're not following spirit, you're following the flesh. You can't follow spirit and follow the flesh at the same time. they are opposites, right? But if you follow the spirit, you will not, verse 16, carry out the desire of the flesh. So follow the spirit and you're not going to follow the flesh. But if you're following the flesh, then guess what you're doing? You're sinning. So it's impossible to follow the Spirit and not be involved in each other's lives. It's impossible for us as Christians to be filled with the Spirit, be made alive by the Spirit, to follow the Spirit and stay isolated from one another. Impossible. If you're staying isolated from one another, you're not following the Spirit. We are to be involved in each other's lives. And when we're involved in each other's lives, we will be dealing with sin issues. Why? Because we're sinners. We're sinners. Everybody who's perfect here, raise their hand. Thank you for not raising your hand. All right, so Paul says, you who are spiritual, that's anybody who's saved. You who are spiritual, restore such a one. You who are spiritual, why is he why does he make it that? Because it's you who are following the spirit. You who are walking by the Spirit, you who are thinking in a godly way and obeying the Word of God, that's who is to go. Now that implies all of us, right? That implies each and every one who has a professed faith in Jesus Christ, who is a genuine believer, that is all of us. We are to be following the Spirit. We are to be obeying the Word of God. And therefore, none of us can say, without being challenged in it, none of us can say, I can't say, well, I can't go to them. I'm not spiritual enough. Can't say that. If you know Jesus Christ, you've been made alive by the Spirit, now walk in the Spirit. And walking in the Spirit is loving one another. And loving one another means you can deal with things. Loving one another means you can go to them. Loving one another means you're you're called to go to them. You cannot say, sorry, I can't go, I'm not spiritual enough. You're never spiritual enough in and of yourselves anyway. None of us are ever spiritual enough. None of us are going to be like Christ in His full sense until we get to glory. But you are spiritual enough when you follow the Spirit. Why? Why do I say it that way? Because when you go, when you follow the Spirit, and you go to them your personal with your personal advice, you're not telling them your personal advice, you're telling them what God says. You're not giving them your own wisdom, your own counsel, your own, hey, I think it would be better if you did it this way. No, you go with what God says. You're following the Spirit, because that's the only thing that can help them. You don't have anything to tell them not from your own personal life, maybe an example of how you found victory over the sin that you were dealing with, maybe that'd be helpful, but you certainly can't tell them anything of your own personal worldly advice because that's not helpful. We don't have any good counsel for anyone inherently with us. We don't have any. Only God has it. So when I follow God, I have what I need to help restore them. That tells me that the scriptures are sufficient. That when I go with the word of God, it is sufficient to help them in every area of their life. I don't need outside source. All I need is what God says. God knows us better than anybody. God created us. We need the word of God. The fact of the matter is that all of us need restoration from time to time. Right? So it's true that in... Walking by the Spirit, I grow in my own spirituality. That's true because I mature as I follow Christ, as I follow the Spirit. I mature in faith. I I learn greater trust in the things of God. I'm better equipped to fight the spiritual battles that God allows in my life for my own growth, my own strengthening and His good. And And yet, there are times where I choose to not follow the Spirit. There are times as a Christian where I choose to not do what God has asked me to do, to simply be fleshy. And in those times, I need someone to come alongside me. I need a brother and sister in Christ who is following the Spirit, who loves me, who wants to come near me, who needs to come near me and help me. So, Paul says, if a person has been overtaken by a sin... You who are spiritual have an obligation to go to them and to help them. So when we get in the church and we're a body life in the church and we're all interacting with one another, none of us can actually say, "I don't have a ministry in this church." Really, God brought you to this church. God put you in this body. He, you, you're 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 here. You're committed to this body. Guess what? You have a ministry, whether it's an official ministry or not. He said, what ministry is that? To be in the lives of these other brothers and sisters in Christ. When you're not with the body, you're isolating yourself from their love in your life. We should be talking about more than just surface issues in life. I mean, I understand there's all kinds of things that we deal with in life as life goes on and dealing with the issues of life. But we ought to be talking about deeper things than just the simple flowery issues of how's your day going and what's the weather like and what's it going to be like tomorrow and what'd you watch on TV and, and how are the kids and all this other kind of stuff. we got to be talking about the deep issues of our life. Hey, how are you doing? How are you doing spiritually? What are you working on? What, what are you reading? What are you thinking through? What, how's that affecting your life? Really, what's going on? What are you struggling with? we got to be dealing with that. We have a ministry of that in each other's life So Paul isn't saying, hey, listen, you who are perfect in your walk go and confront others who when you see the sin. Paul's not saying that. If if that was the criteria then sin was never going to be dealt with in the church. We'd never deal with anybody because uh, I got to wait till I'm perfect before I can do that. Okay, that's what people say. Well, I can't do that. I'm not spiritual enough. That's what they mean. Well, I I'm still struggling with sin, so how can I go to somebody else? Right? Of, he, Paul's not saying be perfect. What Paul is simply saying is hey, look at your life and look for the outworking of the Spirit's fruit in your life. Look at your own life as you're doing this. If you are following the Spirit, then His fruit will be evident in your life. Not perfectly, but it will be evident. It will be there. There will be love and, and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. It may not be this, this grand display of bright lights flashing, but it will be there. It will be evident. And so look at your life. If there is a pattern of spiritual fruit in your life, this is you he's talking about. You're spiritual. This is who Paul's addressing. So he says, you who are spiritual, restore. Restore them. Restore them. That's the original term in the original language. Katartizate. Somebody repeat that five times real fast. Katartizate. It, it, it means return it to its original condition. Return it to its original condition. I am a hobby woodworker when I have free time. I I like to do woodworking. I like to mess around with wood. I have a small shop at my home. I like to get out there from time to time, probably less time than my wife would like me to be out there because she likes me to make things for her. And I like to take things from time to time and fashion them out of a pile of wood and turn them into something that might help and be useful. Well, that's one kind of woodworking. That's one kind of woodworking. There's another kind that I admire, but I rarely do it. And that's called restoration. Restoration. You, you know what I'm talking about, at least by the term. Someone takes an old, dilapidated, falling apart piece of furniture, and they restore it. They restore it. They return it to its original condition. That's what Paul is talking about here with us As Christians, we live together in the family. We are the family of God. And from time to time, we come across other Christians that are broken by sin. Right? They are disfigured because of their sin. Their lives are dilapidated, if we could say it that way. And God calls us to help restore them back to their original condition. If you've ever done any restoration project, it is not a short project. It's usually long, arduous, detailed, takes time to strip away the old and bring on and reestablish the new. That's what orthopedic doctors do with a broken bone. They set it and restore it back to its original condition. Sometimes that's as simple as snapping that bone back in place resetting it in its place. When I broke my leg, fortunately, it didn't have to snap anything. It just happened to be in the right place. I was glad of that. At other times, when someone breaks a bone, it's more extensive. It takes more extensive surgery. At times, it takes even outside equipment, screws, plates, things like that, to keep it in place. Either way, it's all to restore it to its original condition. Well, that's what God is saying to us here in chapter 6, verse 1. Christians, Christian living at its best is lived this way restoring one another. When sin happens, we get involved. Why? Because we are commanded to. And. Because love demands us to. Get involved because we are commanded and because walking and following the Spirit demands it of us. We cannot be content to simply isolate and please ourselves. That's not love. Too often we don't even want to get involved with anyone else. But Paul says the strong ought to bear the weakness of those who are without strength. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, Brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all men. So the question here is, how does restoration work? What's the process? How does it work? How do we do that? Right? Because Hebrews 12, 12 says, Strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. In fact, go over to James 5 for a moment. I just want to show you this. James chapter 5. right place here. James says, are there any spiritually weak among you, spiritually sick among you? Are there any sick among you? Right? Verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Uh, I think a better translation for that word sick is spiritually weak. Not necessarily physically sick. That that certainly could be an outcropping of being spiritually sick. Sometimes we're physiologically affected by the fact that we're spiritually sick. David said when he sinned, the, the guilt upon him was wearing him out like the fever heat of summer. I think James is talking about spiritual weakness here. So are, are, is, is there anyone among you who is weak, spiritually weak? I think that's a better translation. James says, what do you do when that's the case? He says, call for the elders of the church and let them pray for him, right? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. Why? Why would James say that? Because I believe James is saying, listen, call call spiritually strong people. Call those who are spiritually walking in the spirit, right? The elders of the church ought to be those people who are at least strong spiritually, to the ought to be, he says, let them pray for him. Why? Because they're spiritually strong, and the prayer offered can restore their faith. Right? Notice verse 15. The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who's sick. One who's weak in the faith. That word restored there is the same word used in Galatians chapter 5. They'll return him to the rest. There'll there'll be this restoration project that happens and the Lord will raise him up as if he's and and if he's committed sins, they'll be forgiven him. So if you're going to restore someone, how do you do that? Paul says you do it by, first of all, causing them to see their sin as sin, Helping them to see their sin as sin. Causing is probably the wrong word to use there in that sentence, but you do it by helping them to see their sin as sin. Then you help them to confess that sin and ask for forgiveness from God, and then you pray for them. Pray. Pray for their spiritual strength. That's the process in a nutshell. Help them to see sin as sin, Confess their sin to God and pray for cleansing and pray for strength to walk the spiritual walk. So, James gives it kind of in a classic nutshell. There's another place, though, that we see this process carried out in really more detailed fashion back in Matthew chapter 18. So, go to Matthew chapter 18. We know, this, we know this chapter well. We've exercised the principles of this even here in this church over the years of my ministry here. It's never easy. It's never enjoyable in one sense that the process is always arduous. But this is the process of Restoration. Matthew chapter 18, of course, Jesus is speaking about life as a kingdom citizen. This is who kingdom citizens are to be. And it's reflected here, therefore, in and through the church. He says in verse 15, and if your brother sins, right, some of your texts might say against you, that's not in the original language, but some have kind of included it in there, some translators. So it's not as specific as a sin that is against you. It's just this general reality like Paul's talking about. If anyone's caught in a trespass, if your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. So this is what Galatians 6 is saying in verse 1. If your brother sins, what kind of sin? Any kind of sin. and matter. It matter the kind of sin not necessarily sin against you. It's just sin. Go and reprove him in private. Now, how do you do that? What's the process? Well, you go, first of all, and you help him see his sin as sin. You address the issue of the sin, whatever that may be. Hey, brother, listen, I noticed this was going on. Help me understand what's happening here, because at least as I understand it, that's not what the Bible calls us to be. Maybe that's what you say. Maybe you say it in some other way. Maybe there's some other thing going on there. But you—you, you, this is discovery and explanation and exhortation all at the same time. You say, well, sometimes that's easier said than done. Yes, true. Why? Because we all, when we sin, we love to justify ourselves. We yeah, love to make a defense. We are we are the best defense lawyers we've ever had for us. We say to somebody who comes to us, "Well, listen, you sin too. You sin also," and so we get intimidated sometimes by that. Somebody says to us, "Well, you sin." We go, "Well, you know, in my heart of hearts, that's true. I do sin." So what often happens when when that exchange takes place? Well, when that exchange takes place, what happens is we relegate it or the whole situation has been relegated and defined by a judgment call or we make a judgment call on the fly between how bad they appear and how bad I am. That's not what is at stake here. We are not the standard of restoration. Restoration. When someone says, well, you sin like I do, what they're saying is, well, you're the standard of restoration. You came to me to say, hey, come to my standard, and that's not what we're doing. We're not coming to instill our standard upon the situation. We are not the standard of restoration. Who is the standard? God is. It's God's standard. Jesus Christ. And so they must see their sin as God sees it. That's what we're doing. And so we must confront. We must bring the issue to light. If your brother sins, you go and reprove him in private. That's the issue. Reproving him in private is pointing out the sin, calling it what it is, trying to help them understand their sin before God, helping them see it as God sees it. It's a confrontation. Jesus says you do it in private. In private. It's not a Public matter at the time. It's you, you're you're involved in it only because you understand your brother's in sin and you love them. You want to follow what the Spirit says, so you go to them and you go to them in private. Just you and they. And notice if he listens to you, you have won your brother. Restoration has happened. You have restored them back. Onto spiritual ground. They're back walking by the Spirit. They've seen their sin. They've confessed their sin. And now they're back in the Spirit. But notice verse 16. But if he does not listen to you, if he doesn't listen to you, take one or two more with you. So sin has happened. You're involved in it because you were. God has allowed you to be a part of this situation. Sin has happened. You've confronted it. No repentance. They haven't seen it the way you're showing it. Scripture, you know it's sin. It's clear it's sin. They just don't want to repent of it. So now you go back. And this time you go back with two or three with you. Take one or two with you. That means it's two or three. Why? Because by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. It's the confirmation that is required here, not the confirmation of the sin. That's already been a fact. Your brother sinned, you go to them. That's already been the reality. The confirmation is not what happened. In other words, these two witnesses are not witnesses necessarily of the initial sin activity in which there was confrontation between the one in private. No, these are witnesses of those of the fact that either there was repentance or no repentance. That's the issue here. <clears throat> Some people say, well, I, I can't go with two or three. There wasn't any witnesses to it, it's just me and this person that's not what Pauls that's not what Jesus is saying here Jesus said no you take two or three not because you're gossiping in that but these two can be a witness to the very fact of your confrontation and the reality, your loving confrontation the reality of whether there's repentance or no repentance at all so you are working to ensure that you have an accurate report you're protecting, love protects, you're protecting their reputation, you're protecting the reality of what is going on, it's not gossip at all, you're protecting and, 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 and reporting and having it reported, their attitude about their sin, whether it's one of rejection or one of repentance. And so once again, you can't just isolate, you have to go. You have to once again deal with the sin issue, Ex- exhort them that they confess their sin, that they realize it, see it as God sees it, and repent of it. You encourage and you warn. Then verse 17 says, if he refuses to listen to them, right, now you got these three people that are there, the initial one and these two others, if he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. Tell it to the whole church. I remember years ago in ministry dealing with an issue in the church. This was in Ohio when I was pastoring there. And a man came after a discipline situation that we had to deal with in the church and called me to his house. And he said to me, listen, I'm not going to be going to that church anymore. I said, really, why? He said, because I am not going to go to a church where you air the dirty laundry of people's lives in public. And I said, well, I can certainly understand that sentiment. And I just opened the Bible to Matthew chapter 18 and I turned it around to him. And I said, well, you read it and tell me what we're supposed to do. You just tell me what it says, because I'm just reading what the Bible says and doing what the Bible says. You tell me. He said, I'm not I'm not doing that. I said, well, there's the problem. There's the problem. And that family left the church, went down the road, about 10 miles started attending a church where a woman was the pastor of the church. Verse 17 says, if he refuses to listen to you or to them, tell it to the church. What is the church told to do? Or what's the church told about the issue? The church is informed of the sin and they are told and exhorted to do what spiritual people are to do, to go to that person and do what's already been done with that person. Now it's the whole family of God that is in the process. God's love has reached a point where it's not just one, now it's the whole family reaching out to this person. They are to confront the sin. That's what we do. We love them, they're to be called to repentance they're exhorted to walk in obedience to Christ all of that is to be done we're not we're not to be befriending all the issue playing games with it we're to be confronting the issue notice notice what what Jesus says and if he refuses to listen to even to the church then let him be to you as a gentile and a tax gatherer In other words, if he refuses, refuses repentance, if he refuses all the exhortations by the church, then treat him like a pagan. In other words, they are a so-called brother. They're not to be welcomed among the body. Not to be welcomed among the church. We're not to we're not to be hanging out with them, and and so they 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 have all the they all the blessings that the church has that God has designed for the church to be as we sharpen one another in that. They have all of that, but they still go on in their sin. That's not that's not loving them. That's not doing what God has required us to do. So if he refuses, then treat him like an outcast. Sometimes the problem in the evangelical church today is not that we don't talk about sin. We oftentimes talk about it. We even talk about confronting sin. The problem in evangelicalism today oftentimes is that we actually don't do anything about it. I heard one pastor say to me in the past, sadly, we don't exercise that in our church because it doesn't work. I thought, how frightening. How frightening that you, first of all, don't want to love your people, but secondly, don't want to do what God says because you're basing what God says on whether it works or not, rather than just the fact that God said, do it. Some people say, don't preach the gospel because it doesn't work. Really? God said, preach the gospel, whether it works or not. Some seed fall on hearts that the soil is tilled by god and much of the seed at least according to matthew 13 75% of it goes on soil that doesn't come out saved at all so let's go back to galatians chapter 6 paul says restore such a one how in a spirit of gentleness in a spirit of gentleness. That's interesting, isn't it? Why would Paul have to say that if the ones doing the confronting are spiritual people? Right, if we're walking by the Spirit, then one of the qualities of the Spirit is gentleness. Verse 23 of chapter 5, why would Paul have to say that? Because the fact of the matter is that far too often when we confront, we are not gentle at all. We're just not gentle. We go back to my illustration about orthopedic surgery. Sometimes we see a broken bone and we never do anything about it. And so what happens if it's a broken bone in a leg or an arm or somewhere else? The person may heal, but they're going to heal in a deformed way. Think about the spiritual life. We don't do anything about it. They're going to grow up in their spiritual life deformed because we sinfully refuse to address what is clearly a sin in their life. But other times we see the broken bone. We know that they're in bad shape. We know it's a compound fracture upon them in their spiritual life, and we are willing to treat them but we treat them harshly because it's just an irritation to us. Their injury becomes a problem for us because after all, i got to deal with it. We treat them harshly. And by harsh, I don't mean that treating them properly is going to be painless. Harsh doesn't include the reality that there's no pain in the process. No. Harsh doesn't means simply that we're serving ourselves in it. We want it over with quickly. Get it done. Listen, you just need to hear this. You need to hear it in these words. I'm going to be so in your face about it that if you don't get it, I'm going to have nothing to do with you. That's harsh. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul says, "Restore them in gentleness. Gentleness. The gentleness that Paul is talking about has more to do with you and I. With our thought about us in a spirit of gentleness, it has to do with a thought about us as we help the other person more than it does with how we deal with the sin. Why do I say that? Because Paul is talking about meekness. It's humility. That's the idea here. In other words, when we're dealing with others and their sin issues, we need to remember that we are just as vulnerable as they have been to sin. We are just as vulnerable. right? It's the fruit of the Spirit. So restoration is gentle. And certainly gentleness is seen when we are forgiving. That's certainly an aspect of it. If your brother sins, confront it, but forgive it. Second Corinthians two eighteen says, listen, forgive that one so that he's not under this this excessive sorrow in his life. Paul's talking about the man who was sinning grievously as he talked about in 1 Corinthians. You get to 2 Corinthians, he says, listen, forgive that guy. He's he's had he's had enough. Second Thessalonians 3.15 says that when you admonish a brother in sin, you admonish him not as an enemy, but as a brother. Which is kind of an interesting way of saying it, since Jesus said, love your enemies. So, if you love your enemies, how much more does that love need to flow when it's your brother? So you come as one who loves, superabounding love, You come as one who cares for them. In fact, that's the onus behind why you go in the first place. Because you love them. How do you have that kind of heart? How do you have that heart of gentleness? Paul says here, by looking to yourself. Lest you too be tempted by looking to yourself. You only come that way if you're seeing your own life in the correct light before God. You only come that way out of love because you're following the spirit. And when you're following the spirit, you're seeing yourself in right light before God. You're keeping a short account between you and God. So you go to one who might have been overtaken by a sin, but you know you're vulnerable to be overtaken by sin. You're right there. I was thinking about this. There's, there's not a sin that has been committed in the world. Think about it. Think about it tonight as you sit here in your own in your own mind, your own heart. There is not a sin that has ever been committed in the world that you and I could not be tempted to do. I know you say, "Really? Yeah, really." Why? Because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Jeremiah seventeen nine says. Just because we have not carried out our depravity in the same ways doesn't mean that we are not capable of carrying out our depravity in every way. So Paul says, when you come, when you come to a brother, you come looking, to your, looking at yourself. The word Paul uses there is a very strong word. It carries the idea of constantly watching yourself. You be constantly looking, constantly looking to yourself. I was thinking about this as I was studying it. We have two dogs at our house, both of them very high-energy dogs, and they like it when they're outside, and when they're outside, they don't have leashes on. We have trained them to stay in the yard but when we're outside, I constantly keep my eye on them. Why? Because while they are normally fine, they normally don't run off, but they're always on the edge of temptation. They're always on the edge of waiting for an animal to run by or another dog in the neighborhood to come past or Something else to be there. They're always on the temptation. Something to tempt them to be out of line. So I'm always watching them. That's what Paul is saying here. Watch how we need to look. This is how we need to look at our own lives. None of us have arrived. None of us have a need for no longer watching out for ourselves. We need to be watching out. It's always there. We need to settle in our minds that we're always vulnerable of being tempted to sin no matter what it is. So when we go to help a brother or sister that's been overtaken, we go. We're obligated. We go. We go, however, in gentleness, and we go with a constant reality of watching our own lives and our own hearts knowing that we are just as vulnerable to sin. This will keep you off that tempting pedestal of hyper-spirituality that looks down your spiritual nose at other people and says, man, I can't believe they did that. It'll keep you off that pedestal. Because even the most spiritual people stumble. Even the most spiritual people. So if we live by the Spirit, Paul says, let us also walk by the Spirit. When sin happens, go to each other, deal with it. This is body life, this is Christian living at its best. Take on the restoration project, but do it knowing that you are not if that if you're not careful, you're going to be the next project. So Christian living at its best is exercising our love for one another as we deal with sin. As we deal with sin. Second principle, Many hands make light work. We are our brother's keeper. Verse 2. But we'll save it for next time. Because we're out of time. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you that we can learn what it means to be in each other's lives in such a loving way that even the areas of our life that we don't want anybody to see, the sinful things, even the small things, the, the thoughts and minds of our hearts that sometimes blur out of our mouths and it needs to be confronted. Lord, help us to go and do that, realizing we have an obligation to love one another like that. And if it be us that be is confronted, maybe we're blind to the issue in our life, maybe we're just unwilling to turn from it, Whatever that is, Lord, help us to be humble and receive it knowing it's out of love. To quickly confess these things before you so that we can be restored. Lord, help us to know that our brothers and sisters would only come to us because they love us and want to help us. Lord, help us, none of us, to think that we're beyond help. So I thank you for the body of Christ. I thank you for the interaction of one another in our lives so that we might grow in Christ's likeness. Lord, we want to walk by the Spirit. Thank you for having brothers and sisters in Christ that help us do that. And Thank you for giving us the Spirit to lead us so that we might be like Christ. All to your glory, all to your praise. For it's in Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen.